Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic. With me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. We have a guest today named Robin Kelly. He's a partner at Group Denux, based out of Victoria, although he does have apartments spread right across the country, so we will get a, a somewhat national perspective. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about the Victoria market, developing, owning, managing apartments in those markets. Rob's an expert, second generation in the business, so we've got the great historical perspective as well. I'm looking forward to a exciting conversation with him. And afterwards, Aaron and I will do the after show. So please do stay tuned. But Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. So Robin's uh, actually, he's a regular listener of the podcast, so he does know the drill. But we'll say it anyway. Before we jump into it, love to hear the background about how you got into real estate and got you to where you are today. Well, there's uh, two parts to it, essentially. There's a pretty straightforward part and a bit of a longer part. Well, the easy part is marrying my wife. and She was at the time living in Montreal. I was working in Ottawa for the feds and the accelerated economist training program, wondering how I got there after I left economics to do urban planning. She at the time was working for Candrail, but was also involved in her family business. And she told me, look, like I'm going to start to work for the family. We do apartment buildings. We started to invest in Montreal. And I realized that without learning French or knowing French, my ceiling was pretty low in Ottawa. So I'm like, you know, I'll take spousal leave, pick up French and work for the family. And next thing, we were in Montreal, we got married, and I found myself baptism by fire. Father-in-law, old school guy, great guy. He uh, says, you know what? You need to learn French, and you need to learn about real estate. So we, we bought this new building, 18 stories, and the plateau area. Concrete needs a lot of work. Why don't you just take charge of it? I'm like, okay, sure, I know everything. Next thing you know, I'm on the rooftop in the wind trying to speak French about building envelope stuff, and I don't know either, right? And the rest is sort of sort of history on that. And their story is pretty neat because it's, I think on one of the early podcasts, you spoke about a, the typical immigrant family that comes to Canada, invests in a building, and the next thing they have 2,000 units. And over a few couple decades, that's essentially their story. And her father moved from France, met her mom in small town Quebec and realized, you know what, I kind of want to do my own thing. And there's a lot of inflation coming. So inflation is really good for real estate, but no one in Canada really clicked onto this yet. So I'll buy a triplex and we'll live in one and do that. And then they leveraged up 12plex and, you know, the rest of it's the kind of amazing story from really not getting any outside infusion. Where I latched onto it is my dad was essentially an eccentric artist who always had an interest in architecture and planning, he'd be on planning commissions. And he had a bit of a fractured relationship with his father. His father really wanted him to join the family business. So there could have been a family business there, but it wasn't due to intergenerational kind of squabbles, but as I got older, I was pretty close to my grandparents, especially my grandmother. My grandfather died in my early 20s, and he would, he would talk about, oh, I'm getting Costco, I'm going to build a Costco in, in Sydney outside of Victoria, or did the port. And my grandmother, when I was in doing planning, was like, if you want a job in real estate, my friend Joe Barnicky will help you out anywhere you want. And I'm like, okay, not really thinking. As I got older and began in the industry, I realized, well, yeah, my, my dad, when he was talking about moving to Don Mills, there, the sixth house there, and his grandfather was one of the developers that helped develop that. And the later on went to building shopping malls and he built the Saint Laurent Center in Ottawa, quite a few other ones. And at one point was the first Canadian president of ICSE. So for me, it kind of looped around because I'd always kind of been, you join this family, it's super tight together that 
built up and you saw your family and you kind of also saw the intergenerational, how it didn't really go down. You're like, okay, it was almost like a, a fresh start. Like, it's okay. I found something here that I've been interested in this. I found myself in Montreal need to learn French. My wife's involved in expanding the real estate portfolio here. And it kind of came full circle for me. And that was about it. And then we both moved to the West coast after a couple of years, because that's where she wanted to be. She's really into animals and I love boats and fishing. And it was more of a lifestyle thing. And that's where my family originally was from. And that's kind of over time, we have continued to develop out there and a bit in Montreal and the family's done stuff in Calgary. And we have a little office in Montpellier, France, where we've done a couple office projects and still in buildings there. But the key to our group, though, as much as we are a one group, we're actually a collection of five different couples. So they did a butterfly transaction that was planned about a decade ago just so we'd all have the option to either work together, or work on our own, and we share offices and info. Robin, maybe just talk about where the family, the company was the day you joined and kind of where they've come now. I mean, you, you talk about an 18-plex that needs a lot of work in the plateau. No, an 18-story, 18 stories. 18 stories. Okay, that's a little bit more. A couple, a couple more right. units. <laughs> Nevertheless, I mean, had they always had national investments? You talk about some investments in France. I mean, maybe just talk about the strategy that you've experienced and go backwards pre-BC, Robin, or if you need yeah. to, but just talk about the growth. Well, how they started. So originally, they're in Quebec City of the handful of smaller buildings. So that would have been the three and tribe and 12 plexes. It managed to accumulate enough. And I think the cold really, really disturbed my father-in-law, which I can understand. You're from the south of France. It's 40 degrees in the summer. So he one day was out in Victoria. I mean, there's a John out to Kingston, but he realized he couldn't catch fish and eat them there because of acid rain in the lakes. And that was a bummer. But in Victoria, he could be in shorts in February and go fishing and get salmon. He's like, this is paradise. So they essentially left. They, they ended up selling Quebec and bought a couple apartment buildings in Victoria. And over, and that was when BC, I know it sounds really, really strange, but I remember this as a kid being out there. It was pretty depressed. No one wanted to buy an apartment building. He'd be driving down the road with a couple of friends and every second building is for sale. He's buying stuff below replacement four years later. And they just, it's your typical story where you figure out the leverage game. You, you know, up the rents on a building, ask someone like First National and you invest in another apartment building. Then what happened there, he actually jumped back to France. In France, that's a totally, I know we're on the Canadian real estate podcast, but that's a completely different ballgame. And his thought was like, you know what, I have an opportunity to maybe get into investing in some offices in this town that's kind of like Victoria in the south of France, a lot of tech, younger people, Montpellier, and started doing that. And he's like, well, if I don't do it, the kids aren't going to do it. And me personally, when I joined, like that was, they were developing that part of business and I latched onto it because it was really neat. Like, I, I love it. I'm like, this is great. I get to go to Europe and do something a little bit different. But when I met my wife, they just purchased their first building in Montreal. It's around 2003. And it was, yeah, it was, again, an 18-story concrete. And that was when you could get concrete buildings in Montreal for a song compared to now, right? And the basic logic was my sister-in-law, who I actually knew for when I was younger, we went to school together, was just looking at markets and going, well, you know what? Montreal seems to lag the other markets. Rents are low. Prices are low. It kind of makes sense that things might eventually go up. And I guess from about two or three years, I ended up investing in about six concrete buildings in Montreal. So there's a bit of expansion there and expanding same time in BC. And when we did the butterfly, when you all kind of started dividing up the parts in 2009 to make it equal and have a bit of diversification, every couple, so there's five couples again, we received stuff in BC and stuff in Montreal. So all of us had a connection, right, to both markets. So our, our, the largest asset that my wife and I still own is out in Montreal, in the plateau. So we're, we still remain pretty connected there. Where the 
foray into construction happened, it was kind of by accident. One day we're sitting here going, these old buildings, eventually, what are we going to do? They're getting old. It'd be nice to have something new. No one's building anything about 2012, 2013. And my brother, Nicholas, and I, my brother-in-law, we saw an architect was building, doing a feasibility study in Nanaimo on a 94-unit apartment building. So it kind of tweaked our interest. So we met up with the architect and we were like, okay, maybe it could work. And he had some excess land. So we both had excess land. The site I was looking at was not big enough. His was, he's, you know what, I got land for free to try and build a 33-unit building. And it's funny when you're, when you don't have a background in it, you don't really understand sometimes what you're looking at a gift horse in the mouth and construction costs were so cheap. The industry had been, I shouldn't say decimated, but for three or four years, there's really no action. Like I knew the head planner of Nanaimo and he said, when you guys came in with an application, like we all jumped for joy. We hadn't seen an application in two years. So his numbers worked out. And then the second one we did, we found land off of a, actually an Edmonton company that had tried to do luxury condos in North Nanaimo, really great site. And they wanted out because Edmonton was booming and the island was still in a trough. So I looked at the civil costs on the one project and go, if we can get the land for the same amount as all the offsites cost that wasn't predicted on this, the numbers should be the same. And lo and behold, like they work great. Like the numbers, I wish we could get those returns today. They were, we thought it was easy at first, right? So then you, we did a couple more and then all of a sudden construction costs go up and you get kicked in the face a couple of times and you're like, okay, this isn't so easy all the time now, but it, it got us, once you start building new, it kind of, it adds another tool to your toolkit. So we'll still buy a lot of old. It depends on what you do. It's where the opportunities are. Go on. No, I, we'll get there. I'm going to plant the hook. Like, let's talk about the different markets that you're in and, and why and the differences that you see. Before we get there, I want to just, let's just finish the story on the Group Denux. Not Group Denote, by the way, if you're reading it on our cover, it's E-A-U-X, but it's, but it's Denux. You talk about the butterfly agreement or the, I don't think it's splitting, I think. Like, do you guys all share assets still? Like, let me add a little bit more color to that because I'm just curious how that works, one. And with regards to just, you clearly share a website, you share a board of directors. Are you guys constantly on calls, coordinating what you're each doing with an investments and is there some friendly competition? Like around the Christmas dinner table, it's like, hey, I just grew my portfolio by 270 units this year. How many did you grow by, right? Like, how does that work? And what's it like just working in that kind of environment? Because it's unique to, based on all the interviews that Adam and I have done over the years. Well, it definitely, there's definitely friendly competition. I think over time it's dissipated and this isn't really answering the question, but it's pretty pertinent. I think with all of us, our children, there's a 21, I think 2021, 20, I lose track all the time, grandkids in the group. So all our children play together, right? So over time, we, you know, right when we divided, it was totally that. Because the problem in a market like Victoria, you get a 60-unit, 70-unit building comes up for sale. <laughs> there might not be too many of them. So if all three of you want to buy it, you're trying to like hide it from the other person or what do you do? So we had a deal when it comes to acquisitions, we're on our own. That's it. We're totally separate. Do your own thing. You can team up if you want to. And we have on occasion, but we pretty much, there is a bit of that competition. But I think as time's gone on, we're all different. We've all sort of evolved in our own kind of markets and we see things a little the same, but also a little bit differently. So it's not too bad. And, you know, our kids, again, they all get along great, every single one of us. So that keeps everything in perspective. But to go back to how they divided, originally in the get-go, when there was very few properties, it'd be like Jean-Louis and Diane at the time, they were just thinking, you know, if we can each give our kid a 12-plex. So in order to structure this right, so we don't have to have all capital gains, we'll create a company. And the kids could outvoted the parents at one point. Each one gets a shareholder. Each one has a share. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And then for the butterfly, it'd be you take each share and you divide it up. So you have seven shares and you divide it up into seven companies of one share. And then each couple also then split and created their own company. So the company with my wife and I has actually Camargue. It's a region in the south of France. 
Camargue Investments and we have Camargue Properties. So one's a structure of my wife and I, and then the properties that she's had more as a legacy. That was kind of the thing for the butterfly. And I think the unique part, which I value a lot, is it, it gives you the choice. Like you can still choose to work together, but you're not forced to. So, and we've struggled with this, especially now as you see consolidation in the market. You're so much, the more assets you have, almost the easier it is. You can take bigger risks. It wasn't like that 20 years ago as much. So you could still be like being a kind of a conglomerate, I guess you could say, wouldn't have been as huge of an advantage as it would be now. But the advantage you get is you also, we have a structure that's in place that you can go on your own. So if you don't get along with, say, two of the siblings, or if they're not interested and they don't want to put in the work, it's okay. They do their thing. You do your thing. You don't have this where you see families might blow up over time or they have to divest assets because two don't get along. But it still leaves you open. You can still cooperate if you want. So like for one of the office buildings in France, three of us got together, pooled in and did it. So it leaves that flexibility. So, but we're, we're very much like it's family first. And that's the key for sure. And it's, again, my kids, like you might have a day at the work where two of your a little frustrated. And then all of a sudden your son goes, Hey, can I play with so-and-so your brother-in-law's oldest? And you're like, okay, you call him up. Let's get together and let the kids play. Or I'll take him skiing or we'll go fishing together. So it's, it's kind of, it's neat, but we definitely share information for sure. That's the number one thing. Yeah. It'd be a to your detriment to not do that. Aaron mentioned prior getting into some of the markets that you're in because and it's an eclectic group of locations. I'm looking at it right now. The BC ones, you're in some pretty small markets. And then, of course, your biggest would be, I guess, uh, New West would probably qualify as the biggest, but you've got major holdings in Victoria. So I guess we'll talk about BC for a minute. Can you talk about what you've got in that province? Yeah. So we own buildings pretty much up and down Vancouver Island from Victoria to Canberra River, mainly apartments. There's a few strip malls and more recently a couple industrial buildings we had to actually build. We couldn't really find the most part. And most of our stuff in the actual core of Victoria is older. The newer stuff we've been building has been more in Langford and Nanaimo. And it was just land was cheaper. The returns were there when you look at it on paper. And for the longest time, it was neglected by a lot of the institutions. They didn't want to go into smaller, more suburban markets, which as we know has completely changed in the last few years. That's pretty much it. And we're, we're very much it's pretty much return based. Like it's, it's hard to find opportunities. So at the same time, if something comes up, you go for it. But Victoria, the last few years for us, it's gotten fairly pricey. There's good fundamentals there. But when you look at the cap rate differential, that was what pushed us in the smaller markets. And some of them have been hit hard for years, right? Like Campbell River, but you'd see these retirement waves coming in. Even like a city, a place like Nanaimo, you get a university, same thing with Kelowna and Kamloops. And it just creates a new dynamic, right? Where you have a degree granting institution and so I think the island is an ecosystem. We look at it as not one market versus the other market, but an ecosystem, really. There's attributes to every place on the island. If we had an opportunity to get a building in Tofino, we might do it. Maybe for a different target market. That's my personal view on it. But over time, we've definitely shifted more into the building aspect just because the prices for existing for a while got so expensive. And we found there's a bit of an inflection point for a few years where we could build for about the same price as we could, we could buy old stuff for yeah, that's not occurring in the major markets. Well, maybe, I know you said it's not really a versus thing, but let's pretend you're at the bar and you run into somebody that only owns in downtown Vancouver, you guys square off. What are you yelling in his face about why your market's superior to his market from an investment standpoint? We're not buying in two caps. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, I think someone was saying on the podcast, there's that non-linearity of cap rates, right? Like, And I remember having, I haven't had that discussion with someone in Vancouver because obviously you look at how much land, it's a land play in Vancouver. It's almost a different deal. But when you look at, at the end of the day, I mean, it takes a bit of either a financial crisis or COVID to make you think that affordability or I guess accessibility to more 
potential tenants who can afford your rents. That is, that's a fundamental value investing, I guess. And we kind of look at it more like that. The luxury market was underserved for so long, but how deep is that? And that's always been a bit of a concern. So when I look at Vancouver, I kind of look at like a luxury market. This is so expensive now, right? But going for the Victorian and Nanaimo, I remember a couple of years conversing with someone and he's like, well, why are you there? I'm like, well, you can buy something for under the door at six cap where rents are below market and you're buying at Victoria at like two, 200 a door at a four cap. Like our, you'd calculate how much your rents have to decrease. Your cost of capital is the same if you're going CMHC at least. But in one market, you have to have a 50% increase in rents to kind of, or a 30% to equalize your return in the other. So it's just what appetite risk you have, right? But often the risk, when you look at the difference in, I guess you could say weighted NOI, sometimes you're buying at a two cap, you're taking on a lot of risk. Do you have other metrics you use? I mean, we had a guest on, they're predominantly Southern Ontario. Actually, it was Skyline. I don't think they mind I saying it, where they've, they've really made their name for themselves investing in sort of secondary tertiary markets. And they had to add to this, because I can't remember the third one. They had basically a rule of three. There needs to be a hockey team, a junior A hockey team. There needs to be a hospital. And what was the third one? He's like, if those three things are true, I'll buy all the apartments I possibly can in that market. And it seemed really, and I'm sure it's more complicated than that when they get down to their investment thesis. But like, do you have a kind of general rule that you use when you're kind of looking into those sort of smaller markets? And maybe bring Alberta into that fold if, if you can. Well, we don't really have anything smaller in Alberta, but I think in general, the, the hospital really rings true. And especially when you're dealing with an aging demographic, with some of the tenant bases there, a lot of them... So I think when you look at, say, a place at Campbell River, well, they expanded the hospital. And the project we just finished in Nanaimo, I think we were saying before we went live that we rented 30 units in December. Part of the impetus for that, it was traditionally not a great area, but the hospital's expanding. So they have the major hospital for Central Island there that's adding tons. So I think, yeah, hospitals, universities. I want to say airport, but I really, <laughs> right now in COVID, that seems a little outdated because often you get just, if you're in a tourism centric market or a market that has tech in the past, that would be like, what's the accessibility of that market from outside? So those would be the three, kind of like the university, the hospital and the accessibility, yeah. which would have been airport pre-COVID. Sure. Okay, well, let's move to Alberta since I mentioned it because you, you are currently in Calgary. I don't think you mind us saying that, right? And actually, let's do that right now. Date stamp January 26th. Robin is recording this from a hotel in Calgary. And so, I don't know, I'm not going to ask you what you're doing there, but I presume it's business-oriented. So let me just talk about the projects you've got on the go. Yeah, I hadn't gone anywhere since last March because of COVID, and I had to get out to Calgary. And I'm sort of wondering what I'm doing here because I can't go to a restaurant, can't see anybody. But no, out here, we finished an apartment building in Marloop. So it's in more in the southwest urban village and an industrial building actually earlier last year. And we have three other properties in the Northeast, mainly industrial, one retail center. We had hired a new maintenance person and I hadn't seen the properties for a while and wanted to meet them. That's partially it. And we also have a building under contract in the North to a kind of industrial commercial building and a project in Bridgeland that we're going to be, we're trying to do land use redesignation on that. So that's a bit of longer term. But I think what's the interesting thing about Calgary for us is it's had its challenges for sure. But when we first came out here, you could play BC. Everyone seemed to, they talked about the West, if you're out East. The West really isn't the West. BC seems to be totally different than Alberta. And they almost are, they don't really go in the same cycle all the time there. It's like Alberta's booming, BC's kind of a little slower, at least Vancouver Island. And that's what we found historically. So it, just by being in different markets, it just gives you a wider net to cast. And even if that's like, we're still looking in Montreal too. So, and the attraction the last while in Alberta is sometimes in our home market, because, and I forgive some listeners for this, when you see some of the institutions and some uh, some of the Vancouver money coming over, sometimes it just didn't seem like it was 
like people are just paying. They just want to be in the market. But we're starting to see a lot more of that in Victoria. Whereas in Alberta, it's always been very much, okay, what's the return basis? You're not necessarily buying it just to place capital. You have to have a return here. So, you know, we'd look at it more when things would moderate a bit. You're like, okay, you're getting a bit of a better cap rate. You're probably below replacement on the old stuff. And for the newer developments, when we started looking in the urban villages here, like there is a lot of potential, I do believe, in Calgary and a lot of the urban villages, especially with the focus on, say, the 15-minute city. It's so hard to find that in most cities, to find a real core. Like if I'm sure the GTA is the same thing. But here, once condos started really slowing down, we're like, you know what, we can get to these properties with some holding income and kind of ride the wave. And we get to build an apartment building in a vibrant kind of urban village. It has a lot of plans for the future. It looks great. Whereas even Victoria, it's hard. Victoria, the public process is takes seven years, sometimes four years, five years, depending on the community. Could be two, but if you're in an urban village, all the grandmothers are just coming up with pitchforks. So, but yeah, so for Calgary, it's just a different market to be diversified in. So I guess you mentioned, yeah, there's a counterbalance effect when one's high, the other's low. But do you have any concerns about, you know, building new product in that market, given that they've got the additional headwinds? Obviously, all of Canada right now is struggling under COVID, but the Alberta market has uh, headwinds that were there prior to COVID. Do you have any concerns about that? Oh, definitely. The next project video here, it's it's get the approvals and wait, wait to see how the market absorbs. And on the flip side with Calgary long term, I mean, who knows what's going to happen really on the broader macroeconomic spectrum for Alberta in general. But when you look at Calgary, it's still growing. And if you look at the growth rate the last two years, like I think in 2018, 2019, it was about 2.1% population growth rate. Stats can December came out and it was about 1.9, which is actually faster than Victoria. The problem here is the jobs aren't necessarily growing faster than the population. So of course it feels after being used to so much high growth for so long, you really feel it. You feel it if the jobs aren't growing as much as the population, but the city is also a lot of owners, about 75% of the residents actually own. So it's got a lower propensity to rent. So a lot of people have talked about that ever changes. There could be demand, but like we are conscious of it is a wait and see. But I think, I think most Canadian markets, especially with the lack of immigration, that's a common theme. Like I was reading in Montreal, they had last year, they had more construction sites for rental housing started than the four next largest Canadian markets. And much of those vacancies reportedly up to 6% now. So you have to ask yourself what's, what's going to happen in five months. Yeah. No, and we've seen a ton of development there too. So let's shift a little bit. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe this relates to your property in Calgary, but you've been accessing the CMHC affordable flex financing opportunity. Maybe just talk to the attraction and maybe more specifically, we're getting a little bit granular, but what metrics of an opportunity allow you to take advantage of that financing option? Well, just a plug for First National. The next one that's happening in the family is with First National via Michelle. So uh, we'll be starting that one, I think, in the next couple of weeks in Victoria. So that'll be a good one. But for the flex for us, we, being quite honest, it came out in the middle of one of the developments we're doing in Victoria. And we sort of accidentally fell into it because we were renting out. And we realized, well, wait a second here. I think our rents are, are a little low. So we talked to CMHC and sure enough, we qualified for the flex. We did the takeout. And I guess... Looking at it, and this is definitely for Calgary, I think we would try to get the flex. It's, it allows you to hit your same IRR. Like you give up market value for sure in the sense that your rents are lower. So I think if, if you're someone has to worry about your net asset value or you're trying to flip out of the building, it, I think it would be a bit of a challenge to say, hey, look, we dropped the rents by 10% with your expense ratio. Your building's now worth, I don't know, 13% less than it otherwise would be. But for us, longer term, your internal rate returns about the same. 
and it allows you to hit the measure without having rents as high as your competition. And I think for us long-term, like the one in Nanaimo we just finished, we did that. And myself, we've been increasingly looking towards it because you you get the certainty, as you guys know, the, the takeout. You have decent takeout financing. You get pre-approval. But at the same time, you know that if you have to be renting in some market to make your numbers work at X, you can do X minus 10% or discount a few few numbers and you, you'll have that advantage. Sorry, let me cut you off, Robert, yep. before you keep going, because I, I think it, this is a great conversation, but I worry that potentially some of our listeners aren't necessarily familiar with the nuances of the flex or just high level. Adam, you're the sales guy. Why don't you give the 10 second elevator pitch, explain <laughs> what affordable flex is. <laughs> Superior finance package if you have an affordable element in your development. Uh, a couple of highlights would be you can lock in a term debt earlier, your insurance premium gets cut in about half, and depending on how you structure it, there's not too detrimental effect on your gross income. With high leverage too, right? So when Rob yes. is talking about his IRR, ultimately he's got less cash in the deal, may not be generating as much profit at the end of the day, but it all ends up equal in the end. Uh, Rob, and I, I'd actually not thought about what you said, that because your rents are below market, hence affordable, you actually have easier time maintaining your occupancy levels. Definitely. And in a rising market, you might question how smart that is necessarily if rents start skyrocketing. But if you're in a market that you think might be becoming overbuilt or you don't, like when we look at a lot of our newer builds, generally speaking, the rents don't increase that fast over the first few years anyway. Like if you set your rents where they should be, you're looking at a We've actually been below inflation or below the minimum legislated period in BC for a while. So we're, you know, eventually you will catch up like with inflation. If you think that, I mean, maybe not now with inflation at 0.2% or whatever it's going to be, but this is actually a conversation though with uh, First National we've had on a number of occasions. My personal preference is to discount everything about 10%. Because often you find that to get that last 10%, when you get the market-based appraisal, sometimes you're like, is it really sustainable, right? So at least, you know, you have a buffer and, you don't really feel like you're giving up as much, but some communities, it also gives you a bit more negotiating power if you're willing to do that out of the get-go with some of the city councils, because you can you can offer up, you can be flexible. Okay, we'll give four at 20% below or whatever, and kind of be adaptive. And that's a great thing about the CMHC program. That yeah, yeah. Kind of adapt to that. In, in all honesty, being in a smaller market, one of the advantages we've had is there's not many people who could do the flex because they'd be either all merchant developers wanting to flip and CMHC wouldn't work. Or you just didn't have the capital stack for a lot of the guys. When we were doing them in Nanaimo, I think we're the first one to get one in Nanaimo. It was either all syndicators trying to build or people that didn't own any rental housing. So CMHU was really leery to finance it. So we kind of, we had to prove to them there's affordability problem though. In some markets, it's funny. CMHU didn't see it before. It was, it was a bit of a challenge. It took a bit of brain damage. Well, I want to ask about something interesting you just said. Do you not run into a lot of competition in your smaller markets that are set up in the same way you are to build and hold for the long term? Is it mostly merchant builders in the smaller markets? For the longest go, there was really not many builders and then it was merchant developers. That has totally changed. So like in the last two years, we've seen the influx and this is what has concerned us with the secondary markets is we sit there on the Bedarin table, all of us. And the information we'll talk about is you have a town with 4,000 rental units and you're going to add 1,800. But it's still growing. But you look at a population of, say, 90,000 people with 4,000 rental units and you're like, do you have to go to, a, say, 180,000 to have 8,000 rental units? Or is the propensity of the rent of the people coming in going to be 50%? So you only need 10,000 people. And I think that's a challenge. So the thing, back to your point, when you're getting now like Broad Street, Seymour Pacific Woods, there are a lot of people that participate in Alberta more in the kind of prairies when you had the boom 
back in the day and the, a lot of got, a lot of developers got rich in the smaller communities, they've completely flooded the island now. So now the competition's ferocious. And now you have the guys, the latecomers from Vancouver coming over and we're looking at land transactions going, I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine who just did a big transaction. And he's like, land's on fire. You got to do more. I'm like, yeah, but the sale price has stayed the same, but the land's doubled and the construction costs are up 70 bucks a foot. So the margins are starting to get tighter too. So it's, it's definitely becoming more challenging without a doubt. So I think in the past where we had a moat, the moat's gone, so to speak. I would say, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's harder everywhere. We keep talking about it or coming up against it during the podcast, just the amount of capital just sitting there waiting to go or coming into the market all across the country. It just seems pretty insane, the amount of money that people have to invest in real estate these days. And then of course, whether it's industrial or multifamily, both money coming out of retail and an office into those sectors because people need to keep their machines rolling, right? So what else can you do? You have some exposure to, you mentioned New West and, and Calgary, so it's more urban markets, but I think you also have a fairly large suburban or smaller secondary tertiary market portfolio. One of the big narratives right now is this exodus, right? People leaving the downtown cores and moving out of the city center, particularly in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal. That that certainly seems to be happening based on vacancy levels. What are you experiencing? Maybe we just speak specifically to your occupancy levels, what you're seeing in your vacancy in your portfolio, rents, if they're still appreciating. Are you offering incentives in some of your smaller markets? And how does that compare to what you're hearing or seeing in your more urban assets? Where we haven't been doing incentives in the smaller markets there, it is exactly you say it. The demand, especially on the island, it's it's there. People are, they seem to keep coming. Like I think you were mentioning we rented 30 units and then I'm on one building that we just finished in December, which traditionally we were, would be a really slow month. And it's people out of there, it was from all across the country. We're finding people that came in. But compared to the larger markets, I was actually talking to family in Montreal is probably the most pertinent one. It's definitely softened near the core. For sure. Like we're not downtown core. We're more kind of Saint Laurent, Plateau area. The suburbs there are still still fine. There's really no problem and they seem to be going okay. The long-term question that I have on that is that I think a lot of it will depend on what happens with the office because if it's no longer a requirement, and I think even in Victoria, you're seeing this, like I would wager to bet there's a higher vacancy rate in the newer builds that were downtown Victoria than there ironically is in the suburbs. And I think it's just now like a lot of people would be attracted to that large concrete building because you're basically you can walk to the office in that other large concrete building and now like you go to Plasville Marie in Montreal it's it's half vacant two-thirds vacant so the idea of having to live right across from there is I'm not sure where that's going and if it's going to come back quick or not but that would be a concern I have in the central markets for sure but the smaller ones there's still an influx for sure and I think part of it is we've tried to pull our tenants and see okay you still need jobs at the end of the day but what we're finding is a lot of Government workers in particular, say over 55, that might only have a few years. They've been told they might not have to go back to the office somewhere. So they'll be a bit more flexible. Or a friend of mine, he's a chief technology officer for the Ministry of Education in BC. He was looking to go to Parksville from Victoria. I'm like, well, don't you have to go to Victoria? So he's like, yeah, but only two days a week. Kind of thing. I could live in this great acreage and kind of, he, he likes hunting and fishing. He thought it'd be great. So I, th- I think we are seeing the people are recognizing there's more flexibility. And the biggest thing, though, I think is that the smaller markets, which was a negative for so long, it sort of helped them as if they're not dependent on immigration for the growth as much. So as much as Toronto and Montreal, everyone would be building to try and house all the immigration they're getting in the influx. We didn't see the outflow of people from small markets because they couldn't really go anywhere. I don't have the data to support this. My gut feeling is that 
you're not getting the outflow like you're in some cities, but you're getting the inflow. So it might not be a huge change at the margin, but it's enough that it's creating a ripple effect in, in a lot of communities that historically were underserved. So the one project I mentioned in Montreal, they're looking at doing a, it's called like Saint-Donat. It's outside in a, an hour and a half out of Montreal and there's no rental housing there. There's like none. And they've actually, I think exactly, they're building a senior's home and Mark and Bree, they went and they spoke to the mayor of the town and they're like, yeah, we, we need rental housing for the people that are going to be working at the seniors facility. So I think that's a big drive. There is more investment. Like even when we see the retirement homes they're on the island, they're happening, they're happening in secondary markets because a lot of the institutions and the government money realize they get way more bang for the buck. So there'd been a bit more infrastructure, as you mentioned, the hospitals expanding, the retirees downsizing and getting more bang for the buck and wanting to go to a rural lifestyle. But you're also not getting the outflow of people that you can do like from the lack of immigration necessarily. But if you're having trouble making ends meet in a small town, you're probably not going to downtown Toronto. You're just going to say probably not, probably not. So Robin, you've obviously been in the Victoria market for a long time. How has it changed for the residents, the people, your tenants that live there, you live there? How has Victoria changed over time in terms of how they experience Victoria as its own entity? Victoria over time, it's definitely kind of awakened from being sleepy hollow, I guess, when I was younger. And it's more dynamic now. We have a tech industry that's really grown quite a bit over the last 10, 15 years. And that, along with just lifestyle in general, as we mentioned for the whole island, I think with a lot of people looking at downsizing, say, from the mainland or choosing a place to retire, they it's a pretty beautiful place. You're on an island. You don't really have a winter and you have a lot of recreational opportunities. And I think this especially with the ability for people to work remotely, even pre-COVID a bit more, it's really kind of come into its own a bit. And the university expanded a fair bit too. So yeah, so all in all, it's a great place to live. There there are some challenges now with COVID, I think, in the region as a whole, especially the downtown area, but it still seems to be motoring along. Thanks, Robin. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Great conversation. Really cool story. I'm looking forward to following the growth of your family and the other groups as well and see who ends up on top in 20 years from now. Um, a reminder to our listeners, Adam and I are going to digest this conversation immediately after the little jingle that comes on in the uh, Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show. But again, thanks, Robin, for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where it is just Aaron and I sharing our thoughts on the episode. I think before we get into some of our you know, illuminations on the subject, it's worth further defining what we were talking about, the CMHC Flex program. You gave me a 10-second window. I feel like I did a good job in a 10-second window. Yeah, to capture you know, a complicated, in-depth program, but it might be worth spending a touch more time on it. Yeah, well, and yeah, let's preface that with it's not simple. Like it is a bit complicated, but in a nutshell, it's the CMHC affordability program where they're offering incentives to property owners, landlords, developers for maintaining affordability in their assets. Ultimately, I mean, this is kind of simple. It's they have to maintain the entire rental income of the building 10% below what is basically market. So if a unit should be rented for $1,000 a month, they have to rent it out for $900 a month. But they have to do that across the portfolio. So what Robin was talking about at one point was he thinks it's easier just to keep, if he's got 10 units, keep all 10 units at 90% of market. But you can do it a whole bunch of different ways where you could have 20% of the units at 50% of market, but then that ends up with the whole building at 90% of market. So whatever way you carve it up, so that at the end of the day, total building is 90% of market. And another 
caveat, which is what gets a little bit more complicated, is that it also has to have a minimum of 20% of the units have rents at or below 30% of the medium household income. And that's, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because what that is basically saying is that 20% of your units also have to have an affordability based on the income of that particular region. So if you're in a region where income is much lower, at least 20% of your units are affordable to that cohort who live and work in that neighborhood. And I think that in a nutshell explains it. They have to maintain that affordability for 10 years. And then as Adam indicated, I mean, the incentives are things like you can access extended amortizations up to almost 40 years, which of course increases your cash flow. You can put in, it's not, it'll allow, allow you to go up to 95% of cost or end value. So you can put in less money, typically sees 85%. So there's an extra 10% of debt you can lock your rate much earlier. You can lock your rate prior to full occupancy with no rental achievement requirement. So you can basically hedge or protect yourself against rising interest rates if you believe that that's, that's a risk. Anything else I'm missing, Adam, that you can think of is kind of easy to explain? Well, I think you made it just complicated enough that we can boil it down to, give me a call if you got a project. <laughs> Let's not forget that I do this for a living, of course. But I think we made it just complicated enough, but also clarified enough that people have a good idea. But it is a very popular program right now straight across the country. So yeah, it does bear a little more explanation. We kind of jumped into it because Robin is active in that program and he's used it effectively in his portfolio. But yeah, if you don't have any context on it, that probably was a little bit of a, a confusing moment of the podcast. And again, you heard Robin talk about it from a borrower's perspective, not a lender that effectively sells the program. It, the IRR works out to be basically the same. And of course, you're also doing your part for maintaining affordability. We all talk about affordability being a major issue in the Canadian rental market and at general. So there's a sort of social attribute, social benefit to our clients and landlords doing it also. Before we move off yeah, of the uh, topic, one other thing I wanted to mention, doesn't have to do this program, but Robin did touch on it. He mentioned that within the CMHC context, interest rates are generally the same whether you're in a major market or whether you're in a secondary market. And I've been saying that for years. It is an interesting element to it that right now, if you want to do five-year money, it's going to be 1.4%, whether you're in a very remote market or whether it's downtown, the worst being downtown Vancouver, the worst cap rates. So you could be buying at a six cap in one market and then financing at 1.5%, or you're in Vancouver buying at a two-point-something cap and then financing 1.5. So the positive leverage effect in markets that have higher cap rates is definitely pronounced with CMHC. Given that in the conventional market, typically there would be a bit of a premium on the interest rate to reflect the fact that you're in a small market. Yeah, the distinction between CMHC insured and then uninsured or the conventional market that definitely demands a premium for smaller market financing. I really found it interesting. We didn't really tease him about it. But I mean, he's kind of walked backwards into a really sort of nice portfolio, given the circumstances of COVID, kind of avoiding those expensive assets in the downtown core markets and really focusing on sort of the smaller markets and recognizing sans COVID, right? Void of, of what's going on with COVID. It was still solid economic rationale for investing in those secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah, it was nice to get a bit of a tailwind from pandemic, which forces people <laughs> into your market. Yeah, not uh, not the worst thing. But yeah, the other thing that I found interesting as well is he referenced that rents are still rising in Victoria. And that would not be true in a lot of markets across the country. Yeah, I mean, we covered it a little bit. And he did mention that he's a bit surprised by the longevity, or how would I phrase that? By the length of this upturn in the Victoria market and how strong it remains. I mean, shoot, I've been talking to people about how the Victoria market can't sustain 
the level of development and the appreciation in rents and the land prices have been rising for a decade and they've been building thousands of units a year and there's no way that condo prices can continue to rise. There's no way that rents can continue to appreciate. Vacancy rates can't maintain at 1% and they keep adding all of these new inventory. And yet here we are, what is basically six, seven years later since that discussion started and it's still strong, rents are still going up. They're still absorbing all of those units, right? And and Robin, I can't remember if he said it on the podcast or off, but he did say, like, I'm a bit surprised. Like, I basically am a Victoria kid and I've been waiting for the peak and it still hasn't come. It's been really fascinating. Outside of this conversation, I've always, like I said, I've been talking to people about this for a long time. And there's there's a huge misunderstanding, I think, about the amount of empty nesters moving out of, I mean, not just Vancouver, but other high expensive areas into the Victoria market, where it's the warmest place in Canada. I mean, he talked about just the outdoorsiness and the ability to kind of get out and go wherever you want. And I don't think it's really been discussed that well or that clearly that there is a significant amount of retirees moving to the Victoria market from all over the country and probably all over the world that are so attracted to it. Now, how long does that last if the prices keep going up? At some point, it becomes less attractive and something transpires. But for now, anyway, it continues to be a really hot, hot, attractive location. Yeah. I mean, every time you visit that part of the country, it uh, becomes very evident why people want to live there. Yeah. Well, I mean, didn't he say he was, he took his kids out and it was like, it was like nine degrees yesterday morning or whatever. Now he's in Calgary at negative 16, wondering why he's in Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I think that's enough. We covered that one off pretty quickly, but great conversation. Nice to have Rob on. Thanks for our listeners for joining. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast and talk to you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.